On a misty August day in 1590, after a long, hard voyage, the British colonist John White returned to the colony he settled three long years before, Roanoke. White hoped to find the settlement thriving, but as he approached, he realized that something was very wrong. Roanoke had vanished into thin air. Hello and welcome to Yesterday's News, a podcast brought to you by Factinate.com. I'm Veronica. I'm Dancy. And this season of the show is all about historical true crime. We are exploring history's dark side through courtroom dramas, executions, disappearances, mysterious deaths, and much, much more. This week, we are talking about the notorious lost colony of Roanoke. Oh, and this is, I have to admit, when I first read about this as a kid in some book, it chilled me to the bone. It was, it's one of those mysteries that really struck a chord with me when I was younger for whatever reason. I'm shocked that we don't have some, like, really problematic horror retelling of the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Oh, Like, you know how yeah. we have that Winchester movie and now we have all the Conjuring yeah. movies? Like, there's this american history tilt to some modern horror movies and roanoke is made for it come on they vanish into thin air i know except that well as we'll talk about there are some problematic aspects to to doing that yes ergo why i said that any movie about roanoke that tried to put it into a horror movie framework would be deeply flawed (laughs) yeah yeah at the same time it's pretty creepy so Let's begin at the beginning, which is, in our case, the 1580s. That's when England lays claim to Newfoundland for Queen Elizabeth I. And, okay, what I just said probably doesn't sound that weird to our colonial ears, but, like, listen to those words. Why the F is England claiming Newfoundland for Queen Elizabeth I? That's because Queen Elizabeth, England, Spain... Portugal, they're all up in North America and South America's business. Mm -hmm. Um, And people at this time are just claiming land left, right, and center just because they're there. You set foot on one little patch of grass, it's yours now. It's the finder's keeper's rule of law. Yes. And then they just conveniently ignore the fact that other people have already found it. Yes. It's as childish as it sounds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In any case, around this time, North America as a whole, as a whole territory, is becoming a priority for England. And they really want to get their first settlement going. It's not enough to just say, hey, look, I found this. They want to get bodies on that land to strengthen their claim. Mm -hmm. Early Roanoke came about because Sir Walter Raleigh, who a lot of history knows is like Queen Elizabeth's like side piece. That's his most important part. Yes. Yes. He's famous for nothing else, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. Um, He had a charter. Walter Raleigh had a charter for the more southern parts of North America. And oh, this this is actually what his kind of mandate was with these charters, like the official mandate to, quote, discover, search, find out, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories to have, hold, occupy, and enjoy. Ew. So much. Ew. Just like every single word in that is just gross. By the way, I just want to point this out. Why England was so interested in uh, North America and particularly in the southern parts of of North America were because they wanted... (laughs) This is so 
ridiculous. They wanted a really strong foothold to attack Spanish treasure ships via pirates that they would hire. (laughs) That is actually true. They wanted to be closer to the Spanish gold so they could steal it. Wow. I am not kidding you. I love gold. So Rally has this charter, but there's kind of a um, a double-edged sword quality to it because he has to commit to using it by 1591 or lose his rights. Um, there are so many words in this episode that are going to have heavy scare quotes around them. <laughs> That's one of them. Yeah, like his rights to land that never belonged yeah. to him. Uh, sure. His rights? Sure, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true that back home, a lot of people were like, I, well, if you're not going to take that land, I'm going to take that land. So so he's like, okay, I got to get going. Enter Roanoke. Now, the kind of funny thing is Elizabeth was so into Raleigh that she actually wouldn't let him leave her side. So he had to do all of these next steps through proxies. So he sends a delegate. And actually, the Roanoke that we know, that we often talk about, is not the first Roanoke. Hmm. So Raleigh sends a guy named Ralph Lane down there in 1585. And guess what? That colony failed miserably. (laughs) They couldn't get supplies. And they also, like, they were so bad at making food and, like, maintaining food and agriculture. They mooched off the indigenous population. And then the indigenous population, like, started to hate them because of their mooching. (laughs) Then it just devolves into, like, them taking hostages and being general dirtbags. Like, who knew colonists, settlers could uh, be dirtbags? Who knew they were both incompetent and mean? (laughs) Yeah. So with all this going on, uh, Ralph Lane and his colonists abandon Roanoke. They're like, uh, no. So great start to that. And then in 1587, Raleigh's like, well, god damn it, I gotta get this colony going. I gotta get a colony going in the southern part of North America. So he sends John White, the man we discussed in the introduction. And uh, White comes in and hopes that second time is the charm for this colony. Spoiler, it is not. Is it ever not? I mean, here's the thing. White wasn't even supposed to settle in Roanoke. Like, that was kind of scorched earth to them. Because they were like, well, clearly that didn't work out. (laughs) Raleigh wanted him to go to a different part. But he actually, like, his ship got, like, waylaid by a bunch of sailors. And when they got near, the captain was like, no, 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 you go to Roanoke. Like, he directed them there for reasons that are unclear to me. But they did not actually want to go there. Anyway, they end up there. And then as soon as they get dropped off, White goes, okay, cool. See you guys. I'm going to go back to England for supplies. He ditches. Yeah, yeah, totally does. He did intend to return the next year. But as we said, he came back three years later. Like things got in the way. (laughs) (laughs) You thought you run late for events. This guy is two years late. This is from my stand up set on history. (laughs) (laughs) but it is it's like the times you go for groceries and you're like oh man that took way longer than i thought but like instead it's you leaving i'm pretty sure his wife and daughter were there too definitely he left his daughter behind yes i know that's true yeah you're you're leaving them in the wilderness where a bunch of other colonists were like uh we gotta get out of here (laughs) (laughs) anyway Three years later, he does make it back, okay? He comes back. Three years later, in 1590, and as we said, what he sees is pretty chilling. The camp is still fortified, but it's completely empty. Mm-hmm. Over 100 colonists are just gone. And the creepiest detail to me, the one that used to keep me up at night, was someone has carved the word, just one word, into a fence. And that word is Croatoan. Spooky as hell. I love it. I know it. 
It's very spooky. Any kind of word divorced of context carved into a tree is going to be creepy. That's terrifying. The English speaker would not on site know what Croatoan means. Yes. Although White did, actually. Oh. It gave him a bit of a clue. He thought it meant that the colonists had relocated to the nearby Croatoan island. But he never gets to find out if that's true. He tries to get a rescue mission going, but the seas are too choppy. And guess what? He's got to go back to England again. <laughs> and now we are left to kind of pick up the pieces and be like, okay, what actually did happen that day? Ooh, imagine never knowing what happened to your daughter. I, I, and also kind of giving up. <laughs> Me. Well, let's go home. Let's pack it in. <laughs> well, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> So nowadays, we do have a few theories about what the hay happened at Roanoke. Theory one comes from a man named William Strachey, a settler who published his account in 1612, so about 20 years after Roanoke was settled. So Strachey's version of events is pretty exciting. So the Powhatan chief, Wahoon Seneca, heard from his spiritual advisors that a group from Chesapeake Bay would rise up and take his power who lived in Chesapeake, the Chesapeake tribe, and the Roanoke settlers. They were nearby. Mm -hmm. So the Powhatan chief heads over, kills the settlers, and averts the prophecy. This is what William Strachey says. Hmm. It sounds like it's based off of the assumptions that A, indigenous tribes are evil people who believe in curses, and B, they're threats to settlers. Good reading, Dancy. Mm -hmm. 10 out of 10. I have a PhD. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> she does. <laughs> That's a fun fact. Um, okay, so here's the thing. It turns out that William Strachey was pretty dang racist. This story, as Dancy correctly pointed out, plays on very old tropes of Indigenous people as bloodthirsty savages. I say that in scare quotes. It's like that song that Governor Ratcliffe sings in Pocahontas, the Disney version. They're not like you and me, which means they must be evil. We must stop them from... Looking back, that song is very uncomfortable to listen to, but it gets its point across. You know, these colonists had certain ideas about Indigenous peoples, and uh, guess what? They weren't very nice. Or well-informed. Also, William Strachey is the only person who says this happens. Like, it's not like there's a ton of people being like, yeah, we heard about this from others. No, here's what it looks like. William Strachey retrofits the Roanoke disappearance to his offensive ideas about Indigenous people. And then he makes bank by publishing a story that is prob not true. I love how, like, yes, yeah, systemic racism is a huge thing. It definitely informed his explanation of events but also this is just one rogue racist dude going off <laughs> <laughs> yeah like no one else is backing this guy up he's just on his own even the other racists are like um okay <laughs> I guess. sure i guess <laughs> so let's just discard william strakey's version of events here's theory two theory two is that the people in roanoke were like oh, man Pioneer times are hard, and we, unlike the indigenous people who have lived here for a very long time, do not have the skills to make no, it work. No, We don't want to form a new town. We quit. Which, which, again, is basically what happened before them. So, okay. There's some historical precedent for this idea. So the idea is that they effectively abandoned the settlement and peace out. Queen Liz's boyfriend, Sir Raleigh, had left a smallish boat at Roanoke so they can use that go to sea, 
and uh, never make it because small boat, big ocean, ocean winds. No one ever turns up in England. So if this happened, everybody on that boat drowned. And there's a lot of plot holes like this small boat could not have fit an entire settlement's worth of people. So what happened to the people who inevitably could not go on the boat? Right. They would have had to stay back. and Yeah. And where are they? For a story about a boat, it doesn't hold water. <laughs> I'm you're, sorry. You're, you're on fire. You're yeah. fire. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do a historical stand-up special. Stay tuned for our inevitable <laughs> Patreon. <laughs> um, before I hand it back to Dancy, there are some more off-the-wall theories about, like, the Spanish raided the colony or uh, people eradicated the colony so that Sir Walter Raleigh would look bad. <laughs> I kind of like this. It's like, yeah. okay, there was a smear campaign against the queen's boyfriend. But as I said, these are fringe theories. Let's move on to what people tend to think truly happened. Mm-hmm. So here's a little proposition for everybody. What if the call was coming from inside the house? By which I mean, there's no violence. There's no Bermuda Triangle style mystery. The reason that Roanoke so-called disappeared is just because the colonists assimilated into the indigenous population. And I want to note that this theory is very well accepted, and it's not a modern intervention into into the events. Um, People were saying that this could have been what happened since 1605, so well within the lifetime of the colonists. And it makes sense. Again, like these people were so, I cannot impress on you how bad they were at maintaining food supplies and other necessities. Like they needed the indigenous (laughs) population to live. Truly, truly. The first colony, the 1585 colony, like Mm -hmm. they got into a kind of pissing match with one of the chiefs and he kind of sent them on this wild goose chase that that the colonists miraculously survived. They were sort of out in days for the wilderness. And when they came back, they were like, wait, really? Like you guys managed to live? Because they were just so, so inept, like nobody believed in them. So anyway, (laughs) they needed... The population so it makes sense that they'd be they'd be like cool you want to can i get married to you and then you like have a burden of responsibility to take care of me <laughs> this is a little more anecdotal but it is something that was anecdotal at the time and that people believed in and noticed when indigenous people took or removed or just had european people for a long while or you know maybe held them hostage whatever the case was the europeans almost never wanted to return and reassimilate to European society. And this was not the case for vice versa. If an indigenous person was was brought into, into Europe or the European fold, they'd be like, get me the hell out of here. But the Europeans were like, holy, oh my God, oh, I'm staying. I want, like, please, I'm staying. Don't, don't come get me. In another life, I studied 18th century literature, and there's a whole body of texts about British women who integrate into indigenous tribes and are like, oh my God, women have so much more freedom in this social system. So even, again, even at the time, even in the early 17th century, this was a prevalent theory because people were like, oh, well, yeah, that happens. So that makes sense. And I also just want to note that Croatoan, the word that was carved into that fence, was an indigenous tribe. Um, They were part of the Carolina Algonquins. And in the 18th century, they branched out to be the Hatteras. 
uh, probably anyway. And so today, the Roanoke Hatteras tribe claim the lost colony as part of their ancestors. And of course, they might, may have assimilated into other tribes too. But in any case, this this is a really accepted theory about what happened that day. There is no crime. Yeah, they just assimilated into existing indigenous social structures. That makes mm-hmm. sense to me. However, yeah. We do have a fourth theory, and this one is quite spoopy. Mm-hmm. So in 1937, there's this guy. His name is Lewis Hammond. He's just strolling around the Chowan River. Chowan? Chowan? Tell me how to pronounce this if you live in North Carolina. But he's strolling around this river. Relevant information. The Roanoke settlement was on the North Carolina shore. And so this Lewis Hammond person happens upon a jumbo stone inscribed with some very spooky words. I really just like the phrase jumbo stone. I don't know why, but there's something so pleasing about it. (laughs) Anyway, I'm glad you like it. (laughs) Here is what this jumbo stone says. Thank you. I'm going to read it out to you and I will spare you my faux British accent. (laughs) Or will I? Ananias Dare and Virginia went hence unto... I can't. Okay. (laughs) Ananias Dare and Virginia went hence unto heaven 1591. Any Englishman show this to John White, governor of Virginia. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, let me tell you. Okay. So just some contextual info. This is only one side of the stone, and I'll explain it before we move on to the other side, which has some more stuff. For side one, basically what this means is Ananias Dare and Virginia were the family of Eleanor White Dare, and Eleanor White Dare was John White's daughter. So Ananias Uh. was her husband. Virginia was her baby girl. So if we believe the stone is authentic, then this is a very old text message from (laughs) Eleanor to her dad, John, being like, from Eleanor to dad, my husband and daughter have died, and I would like this message to reach you. It's very wordy for something that you have to carve into a stone. Like, went hence unto heaven to say died, because otherwise you have to carve all those words into your jumbo stone. I think this girl made a day of it because there's so much more on the other side. (laughs) They got a lot of time on their hands. All right, all right. On the other side of the stone, Eleanor reveals what happened to the colony in Renaissance-style English that I will graciously translate to you. So effectively, here's what the stone says. After John White abandons his family and leaves for England, the Roanoke colony moves closer to the Chowan-Chowan River. Life there? Bad. Nothing but, quote, misery and war for two years. Ooh. Half the group died in combat. 24 more died of disease. Ooh. Then the colony gets a visit from an indigenous person. I can't say their tribal affiliation. It's not included on the stone. Anyway, this person says a ship is coming and that their tribe is getting nervous about it, says the spirits are angry about the ship's arrival. So the indigenous people attack the Roanoke settlers and kill all but seven of them. Eleanor concludes her message by saying that the dead are buried four miles east of the river with their names engraved on a rock. Ooh. hmm So naturally, this prompts a massive manhunt for this gravesite. Yeah, for sure. And then, in 2021... It has still not been found because no one has found it. <laughs> 
and these stones really might be a hoax. We're not oh, sure. Oh, you almost had me there. You I know. Had thank me. you. <laughs> um, okay. Also, there's a ton of con artists that start popping up and they want a piece of this dare stone action. Uh, tons of other quote unquote dare stones show up. They're all eventually proved to be forgeries. But the original dare stone has never been conclusively disproven. Yeah, scholars were able to use some kind of archaeological dating technology or study to say, okay, all right, we can trace all these other ones to this one guy, this noted forgery person. But this original stone, it's not him. Something else happened in there. And to this day, lots of people say it's not legit. But lots of people say, well, we can't really be sure. So there you go. The dare stones. Interesting. I mean, I'm not a con artist, so maybe I just can't fully understand. But when it comes to the first stone, I don't really get what monetary gain Lewis Hammond would get from from forging the first stone. You know, I also think it would be really stupid to be the person who forged it and then to be the person who luckily discovers it. Like you would outsource that job to someone else to divert suspicion from you, right? Yes. It doesn't really add up to have it be a hoax, but at the same time, then where are the graves? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe Eleanor was, like women, really bad at maps. (laughs) Again, my stand-up special. (laughs) Wow, it's really happening. I'm joking aside. (laughs) Maybe she got her coordinates wrong. Maybe it is a hoax. Maybe time eroded them somehow. I mean, lots of other things could have happened to them in the interim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But again, let's just reiterate again, most people think it was assimilation. <laughs> okay, so what do we make of the Roanoke disappearance, this vanishing colony and the excitement and mystery of it all, even though for the most part, people think they know what happened? Like, why does this disappearance live on in American cultural memory? I think that there is a very interesting comparison to be made here about the histories we remember and the histories we forget and the way we tell history depending on who we're talking about. So when it comes to the lost colony, fanfare, exciting, mysterious. But I want to compare this to a trope of the quote vanishing Indian. It's a colonial trope in literature, but also in these historical anthropological writings, and it was especially prominent in the 1800s and the early 1900s. The basic idea of the vanishing Indian trope is in the name. It is a characterization of indigenous people as just fading away. And mysteriously, this happens at the same moment that colonists start setting up shop in their traditional and often unceded territories. (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) The vanishing Indian trope makes the idea that indigenous people are going to just disappear. It makes that idea seem inevitable and natural. It assumes that they belong to another time, an earlier time, and that time has now ended and it's time for like the white people to come here. This trope obviously elides the truth. The truth is that Indigenous people didn't disappear. They were systematically oppressed. Colonists ravaged their communities. They did not disappear naturally. They were victimized by a settler state. Obviously, though, you go with the vanishing trope because it alleviates your complicity in this system of what more and more people in our country Uh, what we now call Canada, are calling a cultural genocide or just a genocide point blank. Another thing this trope does is 
really conveniently ignore the fact that there are still lots of Indigenous people alive, around, demanding restorative justice, wanting to protect unceded lands, reclaim it. You know, there are tons of people. They did not disappear. But it's just so much more convenient to a settler colonial worldview if, you know, they just go away. Well, it's just really hard not to talk about this and and be in Canada and not be thinking about residential schools, right? Which mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. um operate on the exact same principles that are obviously in play in in late 16th century, early 17th century colonial North America, where you have these schools, they're set up as a natural order to assimilate and you know, refine them into the European way. It's like this tight knot of horrible assumptions. First, that it's a natural order. Second, that you are making them better somehow. Third, because you're making them better, they should be grateful. Not that this is a genocide, Mm -hmm. not that this is a violence. It's reshaping the violence you're doing to them as a favor. And that Mm -hmm. contributes to the idea of the vanishing Indian because you, again, you don't have to acknowledge how you're being a perpetrator. It just happens. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the the other thing it brings up for me is, of course, um, missing and murdered Indigenous woman. That that when <laughs> when Indigenous people actually do go missing, and you know, it's no, it's not this kind of uh, vague vanishing thing, but they actually go missing. Does any mm. does does the state care? Does the state look for them? Do do we afford these women as much media attention as a as a little white girl? I mean, it's it's bad. Yeah, Dancy brings up a very good point that the ways we tell stories about Indigenous people and about settlers, and you see this playing out with Roanoke, it's almost this inverse when you compare these tropes. With Roanoke, the Vanishing Act gets all this fanfare, but the truth is, well, they probably assimilated. But Indigenous oppression, there's no fanfare, and the truth is violent and horrific. But if it happens to them, Western history is like, eh, you know, pass. We don't need to talk about that. I think the other layer in all that, too, it's like a patina on top of this, is like the idea that it it seems impossible that anyone would want to assimilate into Indigenous culture away from Europe. Like, that's also so unbelievable. That's part of the hierarchy and how colonialism keeps itself going, right? What a bummer of an ending. <laughs> I know. It's like <laughs> this episode. Oh, God. Well, well, we knew that it would be this way. Honestly, we planned to talk about Roanoke because we thought it would be a way into these bigger issues. And now when I think of the word Croatoan carved into a fence, I no longer get creeped out. I just get angry. So, you know, that's a different thing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And anger can be generative. Yes. Anger can spur you to collective action. <laughs> so it's all good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One generative thing to think about when it comes to Roanoke and the unseen and really untalked about tragedy of, you know, the violence against Indigenous people and the taking advantage of them is there actually might be Indigenous peoples who are descended from the lost colony. And I think that's pretty cool. Hmm. You know? Hmm. I mean, it's such a tightrope, especially because we're two white settler women talking about this stuff. We're not going to get it perfectly right. 
But I do think it's important not to just always be telling these stories of trauma, even though they are incredibly important. I think you also do have to balance that with this indigenous uh, resilience and resurgence. So yeah, I'm glad that we end on this note. And I think that that's something that we've actually consciously talked about a lot with this season where, I mean, even just approaching general violence, period, and talking about victimhood, period, is um, something that we know that we have maybe a problematic attraction to true crime, but we're also aware of some mm-hmm. of those problems and how do we deal with it. And then, of course, you know, we want to talk about issues that are not just about white women or, or, or white people. But at the same time, what does that mean? We, we line up a bunch of people of color to be brutally murdered? What this reminded me of when we were talking about it was how during um, June, Gay Pride Month, every true crime podcast I listened to decided to celebrate Pride Month <sighs> by telling stories about gay people viciously yeah. getting murdered. And I was like, is this what we want? And like, I don't know what I would have done differently. Are you like, well, Jeffrey Dahmer was a gay man, exactly. so we'll reclaim him during Pride Month. Well, like, I, won't, I won't focus on the victims. I'll focus on the killers. <laughs> Both approaches are just too extreme. Yeah. But I do think one way that we're trying to walk this tightrope and again, we're very open to thoughts about this, is thinking about true crime as contextual, as again, not Mm -hmm. just personal, although those stories can be great and fun and we talk about them too, but as like, what are the surrounding things about this crime? And I think that's how you get into different perspectives in a way that can help broaden the approach. Broadening your approach broadens your knowledge and makes it fuller and more dimensional. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's a good place to end. I think so, too. Thanks for listening to Yesterday's News, a podcast brought to you by Factinate.com. If you want to see my dumb history memes on social media, give us a follow on Instagram at Yesterday's News Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Factinate Pod. You can get in touch by emailing us at Yesterday's News at Factinate.com. We'd love to hear from you, especially about these questions we brought up in this episode. As well, you can always go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another historical crime to dissect. But until then, don't let the bland textbooks fool you. History was the original true crime documentary. 